0: Millions of frontline workers keep our economy running and are provided with the latest technology to do their jobs. But digital adoption, especially by frontline workers, is really hard. This is Frontline Innovators. We explore how to overcome challenges and achieve success when we empower our essential workers. I'm Justin Lake. And I'm Gene Signorini. Together, we speak with experts who are leading the way and driving digital transformation to the frontline. This podcast is sponsored by Skillful, on a mission to help frontline workers learn and use the technology needed to succeed in their jobs. Welcome to the Frontline Innovators Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Lake, and I'm very excited for today's episode. We've got a great guest who is the Learning and Development Technology Manager for Pactive Evergreen. Please welcome to the show, Adam Reisner. Hello, Adam.
1: Hi Justin, nice to be
0: here. Thank you so much for joining the show today. I'm really excited. We had a great prep call going back a a couple of weeks, and um, I'm looking forward to bringing some of those insights into our audience today. So let's start off with the same question that we always do. What do you see as the biggest challenge facing the deskless workforce today?
1: You know, I would honestly say it's it's kind of a two-part piece. I would say access to that learning and then the nature of that learning itself. I think the two go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other.
0: Okay. You're going to have to dig into that a little bit more. So it's okay to have two answers, by the way. Um, It seems like everybody lately has been giving me two answers to my one question, but that's okay. (laughs) So let's touch on the first one. Um, Let's just get into that a a little bit. Um, Access to that learning. What do you mean by that? Sure.
1: So there are a lot of different kinds of uh, frontline learners, right? it has to do with your industry, where you're at. what you do, all of those things. A, an easy example is not not everybody has access to a computer. And with all the recent, you know, push within that, the world, really for digital transformation, you know, digital shift, digital focus, digital mindset, future mindset, growth mindset. A lot of people take that to mean we're at, we're getting computers everywhere, and our learning needs to be world class by putting it on on a computer or making our staff watch a movie or an interactive piece. Well, when you have a and depending on your workforce, for example, like in healthcare, it's a great example, right? Uh, nurses and CNAs don't all have designated PCs. There may be a nursing station, there may be a computer on wheels, there may be a workstation, but those computers are used by multiple people for multiple things. Um, being able to put a learner in front of the medium that your learning is formed in so they can, they can then consume that learning could be a challenge because they may not have access to that medium. Uh, on the other end of the extreme, if it is a learning task that is maybe low frequency but high criticality or high complexity, those are often done face to face. And a computer is not a great idea. But in the um, you know corporate HQ, for example, yeah, everybody's got a computer, but do you know where your training room is? I'm sure you do, but some places don't. They don't have those resources. They don't have trainers, they don't have facilitators. and it ends up being something like a video, which is trying to cover a huge complicated skill set where it would have been more efficient just to sit down with somebody and show your, your team something. So I think that's the first part.
0: Okay. I want to come back to that topic later after we Thank introduce you. because um, I have some questions about scalability of that, that I'd like to just talk through a little bit, but let's, let's go to the next piece of that, which you said the nature of the learning is the other, the other side of a, a challenge for deskless workers. It sounds like maybe you were starting to kind of bridge into that part of the topic already.
1: Yeah, so so I guess we'll we'll keep going with that analogy then. If you have a workforce which carries out like all the um the frontline workers that are building like airplanes, right? Like our new you know fighter planes or high complex pieces of, of of technology, they're not built on an assembly line, certain parts of them I understand, but but your workforce is very highly skilled and they take they're carrying out very complex tasks that are not the same from case to case to case. In those cases, you need to teach those 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 workers um, how to get to the answer rather than what the answer is each time. The that kind of training you would not want to do with a how-to video or with a, a standard operating procedure, an SOP. Sometimes that's the answer, but other times you need to have somebody more seasoned come in and show them what it needs to do and build an SOP that is more defining a set of guidelines. Um, so I think that the second part is you have to make sure that your, your training modality is, it fits, fits the need. Not everything needs to be a face-to-face training. Not everything needs to be a video. Not everything needs to be, um, an SOP, but there's a time and a time and a place for each one of those things.
0: I love that. I think that's, um, uh, those are already some great, fantastic points <laughs> that we're going to come back to. Cause I want to explore both of those areas a little bit more with you before we go down that path let's give the audience a little perspective on, on who they're hearing from a little bit about your professional journey and and what's led to the role that you're in today.
1: Sure. Um, well, it's kind of an interesting story, but I guess everybody's, how, how they got today is not what they thought they were going to be doing as a, as a child, right? That's Um, true. So my background is actually in healthcare uh, in nursing. I'm a nurse by trade. Um, shortly after that, I got into, uh, the medical device industry and, um, invented and patented a couple of of medical devices and because they hadn't been out there before it needed we needed to train our sales force on how those things worked and what they did and teach the project managers about what they were used for and my role kind of evolved into traveling around doing in servicing for nurses and doctors and sales teams and sales reps and I thought hey this this is fun I enjoy being a facilitator um, my next role was almost all facilitation, and after that, I moved into at a different company and moved into content development at a team of developers, and we wrote and created uh, training content, again, in the healthcare space, um, but not exclusively in the healthcare space. Uh, from there, I moved on to uh, system ownership and system administration, and I was hired to create a, like an external learning solution for, um, for a major company for um, frontline workers, which in in most cases were nurses and doctors, but again, not always. Um, And that's to where I landed today as our learning technology manager. It's
0: interesting. You know, oftentimes the definition, there's no formal definition, I guess, but the way that the term frontline worker or deskless worker is often used is really thinking of lower, lesser educated folks. Um, that have more task-oriented roles, but you just mentioned nurses and doctors. And they, they actually really fit the same criteria that they are kind of customer-facing or patient-facing. In this case, their job depends on their use of technology, at least in part. And um, it's an essential part of what they do. So I'm curious if you've noticed any difference in trying to onboard nurses and doctors into technology versus other roles. Does their education help or hurt that?
1: <laughs> that Your <laughs> you know, success? You're in trouble if I answer this truthfully. <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, so in the healthcare space specifically, first you mentioned a very good point I want to reiterate is that the, the frontline worker, like we said earlier, is a very, that's not one face. And that's even that's not even the same within the same industry. You have certain rules of healthcare where it is very task-oriented manufacturing where I'm at now, it's very task-oriented, um, depending on what the product that's being made is, and sometimes it's somewhere in between. Challenge with nurses in healthcare and, and for highly educated frontline workforces, um, they are present, but they're not always in the areas you would think. So the types of technologies that in a healthcare space that they're used that, that those forces are, are are used to are what's an easy term, gadgets right? It's a new uh, new scalpel. Um, it may be a new charting system. It's the new Pixis machine. When, when, when you're in the hospital and you're sick, where, where they keep all that medicine, um, the machine that allows you to take things out of it and checking the right the right time, the right place, the right dose, the right patient, um, all of those things, they change. And sometimes while the physical device may not change, the system changes. And even you log in, you, you got to remember the menus that they get through it. Right. The, a lot of their training is not done on a computer. Some of it is obviously compliance training, harassment training, uh, you know, fire alarm training. Um, And a lot of those systems have um, on-demand resources that those nurses can get to. The challenge we face is, especially when you're coming from from the outside. So for example, in a previous company, we made medical devices and and, and medications and things and we would have to make learning um, assets available to our customers, um, those nurses and doctors. That's a whole new place for them to find, get into, log into with a password and a a, a name and a password of which they have several. (laughs) A lot of nurses have them on the back of their badges, right? So they're trying to remember their 15th username and password. Systems integration is not always a thing. Um, And you get a lot of problems that come with access, if we're going to bring it back to the first name we talked about. It's not understanding the training because they're really highly educated. It's more how do I get to it? Because it's in a different system, and a different place than what I normally work with. And these workforces don't spend a whole lot of time on the computer. Uh, that's not accurate. They spend a lot of time on the computer, but not in the same way that you or I do.
0: Yeah. That You know, it's interesting. I think I know what you mean, but I want to talk that through a little bit because it's, it, it's an interesting thought, what you just said. And I think this actually applies to a lot of roles across all education backgrounds and in all industries that are kind of been used by frontline employees, which is. I think of my job as mostly I'm on my laptop all day. I have a Mac and I probably spend 10 or 12 hours a day in front of this thing. Same, right. Same a me. lot of email, you know, I'm in LinkedIn, I'm in word documents, PowerPoint, all of that kind of stuff. So most of my world revolves around this laptop. It's assigned to me. I choose what windows are open on my screen. Right. So I have a lot of control about that environment. We might say that many frontline workers don't have that same situation because they do have a shared workstation, as you talked about before. They're sharing technology. They're using technology wherever they happen to be as they go throughout their day. But it's, I don't know, I I guess I'm I'm actually struggling to think of how to, to really describe that. It's less personal to them. They're not using their machine. They're still using technology. And in fact, a nurse may spend the same number of hours a day on technology as you or I may, but it's not his or her dedicated machine, right? It's a shared use thing. Let's talk about that for a second. Cause I, I wanna try to think of a way to define this better so that we can then think about the implications to those work workers that make this different.
1: Sure, you know, I think it is a thing it's difficult to articulate, but I, I kind of think in analogies and, and when the one that came to my mind was it's a primary tool or a secondary tool. Okay, a primary tool for a carpenter is a saw. They spend a lot of time of their, of their day sawing boards, nailing boards, measuring boards. A stonemason may also have a measuring tape. He has to know how long the wall or the patio is going to be, right? And he may use a saw to cut stones, right? But the main, his main tool is probably, you know, masonry bit concrete. Mm-hmm. And he's laying bricks and he's using sand, right? You're using the same tool. You're even using the same tool in the same way but the frequency and the depth at which you use that tool is quite different. In healthcare, computers are used a lot for record keeping and charting. A lot of their actual healthcare provision is not done on a computer, it's done face-to-face through mechanical intervention like surgeries, uh, medical internal interventions like medications or therapy that they may or may not do themselves. Um, that, That can still be 10, 12 hours a day on a computer but someone who's um, like a system programmer also uses their computer for 10 or 12 hours a day, but that is their primary mechanism of work. And they are very familiar with that one computer and how it works, right? Whereas a nurse, the, the computer on the, on the north end of the wing kind of works sometimes, but if it's raining, you can't use this, right? It shuts off sometimes. Right. Or for me, on certain days of the week, I know if I go into the office, then the work is very slow because the servers are provisioning things differently. And I'm like, well, that's, you know, I stay home on those days so I can get my work done quicker. Right. Um, Same tool, different uses.
0: I think that's a great, really great way to describe it. And you've also touched on something that you talked about in the beginning, which is access to the learning. So let's, let's talk about that. You you described that as one of the challenges facing the deskless workforce. And I'm curious to explore that with you, especially in light of this scenario where we're talking about folks who are using technology as a secondary part of their job. I love the way you've described that. Um, And particularly, I think, with shared devices where they aren't necessarily assigned the same computing platform, but yet we have an expectation that every part of their job is tracked, even if it is just for record-keeping and charting. Every part of their job depends on that technology, yet we don't assign one to them and we're not delivering training to it. So how do we bridge that gap?
1: Well, I think there's there's a lot to that. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, but you actually mentioned that the shared the shared workstation um, in manufacturing. We have this. We run into this quite a bit as well. Um, workforce of significant size and not a lot of computers to go around. Um, if you're at a site that has a training room, and that again is a term that can mean many things to many people, <laughs> it may be a room with one computer in it. A former closet that now has a computer in it it may be a whole you know university style auditorium with 10 20 30 40 computers in it if you're one of those sites that has multiple computers then it's maybe or maybe not a little bit easier to schedule blocks of users that come in um, and they can take all of their training at once again depending on what their training is and how it's being delivered and what your yeah. workforce looks like uh, if it's an hourly workforce then Sometimes it's difficult to get them in, and because you have to pay them for the time that they're there, um, right? There are other scenarios if you're on the other end. Again, in this workspace where you've got one computer, and you've got to train your whole building, you know, two, three hundred, four hundred people on one computer. Your solutions are going to be more face-to-face based, like, like we were like we were saying earlier. Right. One of the challenges that isn't often considered, at least not by not right away and not by, by all stakeholders the people in the IT world, I think tend to recognize this is when you have, in my experience, is when you have a shared workstation, your, the way your company has set up your workforce plays a huge role in this. If every worker has, has like a, a UPN ID or an employee ID or an email account, even if the worker doesn't know that they have an email account, that's going to drive, like if you have, it's called a thin client, but like you, you, so like Adam goes to this computer and logs on, now the computer knows, okay, show him all of the Adam stuff on this computer yep. and there I can access my version of the LMS or any of my whatever day-to-day work, workflows I use. Um, I have to log into that, that thin client before I can log in to my other stuff, right? Those logins often require unique identifiers and certain state laws or certain, uh, Companies don't always want to use employee IDs as unique identifiers. That's great for a small company when you can use a first and last name, Justin Lake, Adam Reisner, right? Yeah. However, when you've got 35,000 people, there might be another John Smith, right? And now you're running into John Smith 2, John Smith 3. And that goes back to that access. Now you have an employee who's really just trying to get his compliance training done. He came in an hour early so he could do his employee training, and he's got his shift that starts now in 45 minutes because he spent 15 minutes trying to remember his password, logging in, doesn't access. The two systems aren't networked together. You've created a roadblock and you've just made a whole mess of problems for your team that could have been avoided if you had thought before about the modalities in your systems integrations. I,
0: this is one of the most surprising things. I, I agree with what you're saying. We've experienced what you're saying in my day job, and I think it's, probably one of the things that I would have least predicted that we'd be involved in trying to solve with large companies is like how to help their frontline employees sign in <laughs> to a learning experience. Oh, know. You know, it it you know, I don't think anybody gets excited about saying, "Hey, we're going to go do a tech innovation process and we're just going to focus on how to make it easier to access." But it's turned out to actually be a pretty big problem. And I think it's exacerbated with some of the frontline worker roles. Again, kind of going back to compare and contrast mine and your role versus that of many frontline workers. Um, you know, I have a, a phone that I can get text messages with. So if I have a password and I don't remember my password, I can click the, uh, you know, change password button and I get either an email or a text message, right? Right. Well, all those great mechanisms go out the window if that employee doesn't have corporate email or corporate text messaging capability. So we've had to like really work pretty hard with our clients to go solve around that problem and come up with alternatives. And I I think a lot of people that have maybe never tried to solve that problem are just like, what's the big deal? Just send them an email. Yeah, but they don't actually have an email account in the same system. (laughs) So go ahead.
1: Oh, I was just going to say it's another, you know, interesting piece too, as you mentioned earlier, is the, you said, send them a text message and in a lot of manufacturing environments you, you, and in healthcare too, cell phones are not a thing, right. right? Now for you or I, no big deal. There's a neat poster on the wall. You could pull out your phone. You could beep the QR code and you got the neat message from whatever right. you got in your training. Um, a lot of nurses don't bring their, they don't bring their cell phones into patient rooms. It's not only is it big but it can be a big HIPAA violation. It's yeah. also an infection vector. You put that phone by your face and on your hands. I don't want to bring that into a room of somebody who's potentially sick. I can get that sick and get me sick. Uh, on the manufacturing floor, you're, you're, there's there's things moving. You need to be paying attention. There's big machinery around. So even if a great solution would be just-in-time learning on a cell phone, beeping a QR code, that's not an option to that, to that team. Um, but the second thing I wanted to mention was you end up with these you have big companies and they have a lot of different systems and you need a lot of different big systems to support large organizations with large numbers of people. And I've wondered to myself too, like, why, why is it you into to sometimes you have two or three LMSs, which is a whole different can of worms, um, or why do we have two or three different instances of, of, of people software? Or why do we have two or three different instances of, of time tracking software? And I think it comes back to, you know, when you have, when that company is growing, they, they had a solution. They may or may not have had a solution for whatever that problem is. They may, they may or may not have already had timekeeping software. When they acquire another company or when the company expands and suddenly they're beyond the scope of their first contract that, with that timekeeping software, they, they pick up another piece of software because they have a need today, it needs fixed today, and we can purchase this solution and here it is and now our business is not disrupted. That's fine for a while, but as the snowball keeps going, you end up with two or three copies of software that's doing the same thing and training solutions that are doing the same thing. And employees that are getting two or three different versions of the same harassment training Because the first time it was assigned. It was assigned to reoccur every year. And the second year there's a new one, but the first one didn't stop. Um, I think the bigger an organization gets, the more solutions can be available to them, but it's also a bigger responsibility to maintain those solutions to make sure they continue to mesh with each other by having employees that have email addresses, or unique identifiers, or ways that they can all access your systems.
0: This is something that we see every day. Large companies, particularly those who have expanded through acquisition and merging you know, with other companies, where both companies had different learning tools, and like you said, different time tracking tools, different work order management, different manufacturing tools, all of those things get merged together, and it seems like it's a years long, maybe to infinity uh, duration to go optimize and and pull out all that duplication. And I, I do think it impacts the user experience slash learner experience for all of those systems where I think stakeholders in the organization would say, but we have those tools in place. We have those systems in place already. But to a point that you made earlier on, it's, yeah, but can they find it and can they get access to what they need when they need it?
1: There was a, a big piece not long ago um, when there were the, the reimbursement structure and to, to make a healthcare example uh, changed and it drove a lot of consolidation of major healthcare systems. And you may have noticed this just out in the world, but one of the local systems around here is like North Shore Health System. There were a series of hospitals and a few outpatient facilities. Um, as the reimbursement and quality of care standards change at a, at a federal level, a lot of those major systems, it's like raindrops in a the windshield. They, they, they bought each other up, and now there are fewer players on the field, but those players are larger. Because other hospitals were acquiring other hospitals and bringing them into the fold in the system, um, you ended up with, it's not always necessarily like an acquisition or a merger, although I guess the business definition of what I described would be an acquisition or a merger. But right. you end up with, again, a hospital that was totally functioning on its own island doing everything you needed to do just fine. And you have another bigger system with those same systems again. Nobody made any mistakes. Nobody didn't plan accordingly for the future. Nobody did anything wrong. But at the end of the day, when you flip the switch on one of your like people management systems and now all of these nurses roll up under the same place in the training space, they all have the same training standards they need to take, but they can't get into that system because that piece of the roadmap has not yet been completed. Now you have frustrated employees that are trying to get their training done, or trying to learn about the new virus that's going around like COVID, for example. And maybe this hospital has data and one set of standards to treat that and the other hospital does not. Or they're different. And how do you make those match? So it's not even necessarily through like somebody didn't think ahead. It can happen organically in the space as well. Through something that has something totally unrelated to do with systems or trainings or processes.
0: I think you've you've really, uh, that was a great insight that you just shared. And I I just want to repeat my takeaway from that. That is, just because an organization has ended up in a situation that may be suboptimal today, Mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily mean that people made mistakes to cause this outcome. I think that was a really, really good point. And I think I'm kind of a natural problem solver. So I am, I tend to approach things when I'm learning about a set of circumstances to say, you know what's the root cause of this problem? And um I, I think it's a really good perspective. and I, I think as as you were describing that, I'm thinking of interactions that I've had with companies that it wasn't a bad decision that led them to this. It was maybe some completely unrelated decision that essentially had a downstream effect on the tools that they're using. And this isn't just related to learning technology. It could be, why would a company have two ERPs? Why would a company have two time tracking systems? You know, who who made this ridiculous decision, right? Well, the truth is, there there may be some background that in both cases those decisions were absolutely the right ones at the time, and then through a series of events that happened in the universe, they they now look silly in hindsight. But um, that that's a really good perspective because I I do think that a lot of what holds us back sometimes inside large organizations, and I know some of our audience will appreciate this, is that. Whether we want to admit it or not, there are a lot of politics involved in trying to solve problems because there's um, a little bit of protectiveness about, well, this is why we did that thing in the past, right? So there are people are digging their heels in because they may have been involved in that previous decision. And so they're digging their heels in when in reality, we need to kind of flip the, or hit the reset button and say, okay, if we were going to solve this problem today, going forward, what would that solution look like? What do we have in place today? And what do we need to modify now to make that better?
1: Right. And I think, uh, too, a big big piece of that, just like we said, even if it was no one's fault or whatever it is, the issue exists today. We still need to train our workforce. We still have to get product in boxes and out the door. We still have to get the sick people well. We still have to distribute these medications or these pumps or whatever it may be. Great. We have a problem and it's no one's fault and, and great, good. That hasn't fixed the issue that I'm still facing today. So, yeah. how do you? come up with a solution that doesn't create a third issue that you will run into five years from today, right? And to keep the cycle from repeating. And I think that piece involves a lot of, I think something we mentioned earlier was, was kind of digital. I guess it's referred to not always, but as digital transformation or scalability mm-hmm. rather. When you implement your solutions, leave leave open pieces. I don't mean I don't mean leave gaps in your solution. I mean make your solution right. scalable so that in the future if there is a chance that something happens you can plug other systems into it and not disrupt your workflow if you can bring in a system that needs a unique identifier consider perhaps an enterprise level account with that vendor instead of purchasing your own licenses on a case-by-case basis because if you're purchasing licenses case-by-case they all have to follow the same format and that format may not exist with another system or, another, or that those data points might might not exist for your hourly workforce, for example, things like that, right? If if you have to, when I was a nurse, we'd scan our badge for everything to log into stuff. And it was great because I didn't have to remember a um a password for things. But not all the badges in my facility were the same. They didn't all have the RFID chip in them. So you'd run into cases where somebody I'm making up an example, but like somebody yes. from maintenance, for example, needed to get to one end of the building. That wasn't their zone, but, but they were right there. It's just on the other end of that door. I just, I just need to change that light bulb. Can I just I'm five feet away? Well, sorry, you've created a roadblock because you didn't scale your systems up and consider that the maintenance team don't have the BP that ba- We call them the BP badges. They didn't yep. the badge would beep as well as the door. Um they didn't have the BP badges, right? Um it's things like that, that you that anyone can can consider and think ahead of and just leave. Weave open ends on your molecule, on your web, right? So you yeah. tack stuff onto it later. I,
0: I like the way you're thinking about that. One thing I've observed when working with large organizations is, they, there's a tendency, especially if they've had some circumstances that they're trying to recover from, some decisions maybe that have been made in the past, kind of along the lines of what we're saying, right? They're they're on a path to say, hey, how can we resolve this situation that we're in from a technology standpoint? make better decisions going forward. I've seen a tendency for the pendulum to shift the other direction and to try to solve for every scenario possible going forward. And, and that tendency has caused you know what we would call scope creep in its simplest form, but it's, it's all like the, the aversion to risk or in an attempt to mitigate the risk, they're trying to solve for every potential circumstance too far out in the future. And the irony that I find in that is a lot of those same companies would describe themselves as trying to be more innovative, but I, I think there's a disconnect between innovation and kind of rapid iteration, and then allowing you know scope creep as a as a method for risk mit- mitigation. I'm curious to get your take on that. Yeah,
1: I think there's a lot to be said for that a previous company I worked with was very ready, fire, aim. It yeah. was a very big drive to be first to market with your new medical device or or you know what have you, and it it serves the organization in my opinion it serves the organization very well in a lot of circumstances, but in that same vein you end up with multiple solutions for the for the same issue, and again what we keep coming back to who's caught in the middle of that, but that frontline workforce right um, there's this new training it's the best thing in the world it's the magic bullet it will get everything done and you can do all these things right in one go. Okay, it doesn't hook up to anything else that we already have, and the, the learners cannot get to it. No problem. We'll just make them all accounts. We'll throw a bunch of money at it, and here it goes. We've bought all these licenses. Okay, guys, log in. You're now back to your frontline workforce. You've just got to go to three different places to get their training, and if they don't have, again, making the same point, if they don't have that time to do that training because they just showed up to work half hour, an hour early, they're not clocked in, or they did clock in, and they're just trying to get there, but it's not in this system, it's on the other system. Oh, because you bought this one off solution, it's only on the red computers, not the blue team computers. So you got to walk out of the building or the blue team computers. Um, there are a lot of pros to that rapid innovation approach and being first to market and, and doing things like that, but in the long run, it can also slow you down because your workforce isn't trained on the thing that you innovated to bring yourself first to market. So you have the first prototype, but somebody else beats you to the punch for a production model because they scaled up appropriately and they, and they, they tackled one or two issues at a time rather than trying to solve the whole thing at once and bring themselves out or coming up with an 80% solution instead of a hundred percent solution.
0: Yeah. I, I think that's per- perhaps the, the right answer is to find that balance because I, I can see going too far in either direction, being too iter- iterative, uh, just kind of throwing stuff out there, you know, and kind of seeing what sticks versus trying to overthink and, and solve for everything to try to get to hundred percent before you do anything. Mm-hmm. Both of those extreme scenarios seem to cause either a lot of problems or a lot of delay. And, and perhaps the right answer is to to get to a point and maybe, you know, the, the 80% is like get to 80% um, of where you can feel comfortable knowing that 20% of this hasn't been figured out yet, right? And whether that is a new technology deployment or whether that's a new learning experience, knowing that it's not going to be um, 100% out of the gate, but building in time for to have a feedback loop and to make sure that we're going back to, to iterate on that so that we can bring it from 80% to you know, something closer to 100 over time.
1: I think too, there's, you said something that kind of caught my, caught my ear. You you mentioned a just-in-time solution in the, as we all know, in in the training space, a just-in-time solution is a quick, short, digestible learning bite somebody can use to get what they need right then, right there, and off we go. And sometimes that is linked into their training record, or sometimes maybe that training is delivered through another way that's not linked to their training record. In either case those types of, of micro learnings is another term similar term yep. for a similar idea yep. um which fits into adult learning theory by the way when you're on the phase one up and the phase two up um is a great way to plug those gaps temporarily until you work those new innovative business re- really solutions into your frontline force. If you have a quick and easy way to deliver just in time micro learnings some make that answer may be through an LMS. It may be through using your phone or another tablet, maybe it's chained to the wall and you beep the QR code on the side of the machine, it gives you a 10-second video on how to fix the thing you're wondering how to fix. So you keep going with it. Um, you can use those types of technologies to plug that temporary gap because you you move so fast, you covered a lot of ground, you may have you probably will have a lot of knowledge gaps in your in your team that's actually deploying the solution, your sales force, your manufacturing force, your nurses, your doctors, and that can buy you time until you weave in a semi-permanent or a very permanent solution into your regular onboarding training regimen. Um, just one one of the ways to solve for that, but it doesn't make it any less tricky sometimes, but it is a way I've seen, excuse me, I, w- I have seen that work in the past.
0: I think that's a great piece of advice, actually. And that is also something we've been talking a lot about, the the concept of minimum viable proficiency to get somebody, you know, perhaps onboarded into a new role. Hmm. Or, um, you know, even when we're deploying new technology to to go and expect that we're going to train all of the new participants to 100% of everything that they'll ever need to know is, you know, irrational uh, and probably not super effective anyway. But to give them a, a minimum viable proficiency to get them on the plant floor, you know, the store floor, whatever the case may be, and get them using the technology and then be able to monitor where... They're asking for for more help through you know those whether it be a job aid or other micro learning you know uh, opportunities for them, and to then fold that back in to reassess what should be a part of the minimum viable proficiency curriculum you know okay. so that we're we're using that as a continuous loop and I I do think that that's something from the outside looking in and I know I am idealistic when I say things like this but looking from the outside in into these larger organizations that are complex organizations to deal with the, the, probably if I could summarize one of the biggest problems that we see is they look for a single answer and then just expect to stick with that indefinitely. Like we, we don't see a lot of that continuous feedback where there's an expectation that we're going to continue to modify this plan over time. It seems like somebody was asked to create a plan and they're like, they're hitching themselves and their professional reputation to this plan and it's got to (laughs) work. Right. Rather than, you know, the 80-20 that we were talking about before. Hey, here are the things that we know. Here are the known knowns. Here are the unknown knowns, right? Hey, hey. Here are the unknown unknowns. Yeah. But to to carve that out is actually part of the strategy to say that our plan is going to be to continue to learn over time so that we can refine this and make this experience better. I, I think a lot of um, teams would serve themselves, their leadership, and and ultimately their, you know, their other stakeholders very well to be thinking of it more as a continuous improvement cycle rather than just a one and done.
1: Right. And I think that's where a lot of technology innovation can take place. You can utilize technology, like I mentioned earlier, for those just-in-time solutions. That wasn't a piece of tech that was available maybe even, what, 10 or more, 15 years ago. for Sure. 10 yeah. years ago, things like QR codes and phones were prolific, but not as prolific. But you know, again, that's not the solution for everybody. And and we haven't mentioned this, but sometimes that can be expensive. Yep. And so sometimes back to that 80-20, there may be a piece of technology out there that will solve wider problems and make the world a better, sunshiny place. However, if, if it's out of your budget or if it's not cost-effective for you to train your sales force on this, where's that 80 that you can get to with a nod towards, hey, what are the pieces of this magic solution that we actually need? And what can we ladder up to later? Okay, if I have to ladder up to this one particular piece of functionality which we don't have today, but my gosh, we probably gonna need it in five years if we keep moving in this direction. I better leave that space on my molecule, my learning web. I better leave yep. that open because I'm going to have to plug something into
0: it later. Let's face it: the general public didn't know how to use QR codes until COVID, when no. when the only way we could eat somewhere was to pull up the restaurant's menu on our own phone. That's really what helped, you know, the global society evolve to adopt QR codes.
1: <laughs> you know, you mentioned, you asked me this earlier, and I, I, I you know, about the technology literacy, technological literacy, really, about a lot of people in the healthcare space and health. I didn't want to give a too nuanced of an answer, but in the healthcare space, it's a, it's an interesting place, especially now, because there have been a lot of changes in how doctors and nurses are educated especially in the level of education and and, and the, the proficiency of nurses has gone up. I, I couldn't even tell you, I mean, I mean dramatically, probably in the past 20 years or so, their scope of practice has increased. But you still have the nurses that were from the old guard who have all of their knowledge through hand-me-down learned, learned experiences, and they are very proficient at what they do because that's how they learned it, and that's what's worked for them for the past 20, 30, 40 years you know, heaven bless them if they can hang on that long because that's a long yeah. time people get that care. yeah, That's different than the younger, what I would be considered one of the younger generation of nurses who maybe learned something different or a newer piece of practice, um, um, what I learned in nursing school. The same applies to technology and using those technologies to provide solutions to people. And this isn't just training, but you have a generational divide, a very quick shift in the paradigm that happened in a very small amount of time. And half, not really, but half your nurses do things and think of training and use computers one way and grew up using computers one way. There's another group of people that grew up with, 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 you know, computers and they picked them up, maybe halfway through their formative years. People my age that started learning computers, maybe like late in middle school, very early high school, we had keyboarding classes and now to what I assume are the younger generation, to where they're born with these devices in their hands. And I know my, one of my nieces, she doesn't know how to move through the menus and can't read but she knows how to find Olaf on, her, on, on the iPad and she knows which icons to click to get to the movie to find the snowman who can talk to her.
0: Yep.
1: The, that, the training solutions and the needs of that generation of learners is going to be quite different than, than the learners 20 years ago and I would assume 50 years from now. So getting technology and getting innovative technological-based solutions may solve all your questions on, on paper, but your workforce might not be a, a workforce that that uses technology that way. And that goes back to the primary and secondary rules of the trade, I guess I would say.
0: Yeah. And that that actually goes back to something that you said um, you know, at the beginning, the, just the access and the modality. I mean, w- we have to deal with those multiple generations in the workforce at the same time. So it's not like we just have, I don't even know all the right names, Gen Z or millennials or whatever the heck all the different generations are called, but basically that you know people that fit different profiles along that digital competency and comfort range they're all in the workforce at the same time so a single answer may not be the right answer for all of those folks across all those different profiles
1: even if it is on paper
0: yeah yeah you you talked about that i know we're we're running out of time already but there was one thing that i, I wanted to go back to earlier you talked about um, just across the the range of modalities. You talked in some cases about maybe the best method for just being able to pull up next to somebody and and talk them through doing something. Mm-hmm. And I completely appreciate that. But with reservation, mm-hmm. that a lot of the organizations that are affected by these technology adoption challenges are large organizations. That that approach may make the most sense to use your term on paper, right? That might be the best modality when we're talking about one-to-one. If I could optimize for this learning experience for this learner, what would be optimized? But in an organization with 10,000, 20,000, 50,000 employees, that doesn't scale particularly well. And when we try it, what we see is massive inconsistencies across the organization where we have, you know, essentially train the trainer to the trainer. It just doesn't, it just doesn't pan out. So I'm curious about kind of where you would draw the line about, you know, even though that modality may make sense on a one-to-one basis, how do we kind of take a step back and say, okay, but at scale, that's just not feasible.
1: In past organizations, I've implemented solutions for set groups of learners in the kind of because the manufacturing space is what you call it, right? Um, there were some of the products that were being made were, were very hands-on and were very complicated to make. And we had a workforce that was, it was kind of a unique situation, but the, 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 the machines that made the product were proprietary and they were, they were so proprietary that there's no like standard documents or training on them. We've had that same workforce as old mechanics. And they've been in since like the seventies or eighties, mechan- you know, the mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, guys that have been doing this forever. Um, and they kept those same roles forever because the high complexity of those tasks is keeping these machines online. We are into a situation to where they're starting to all retire at the same time. Yep. Right? <laughs> you need a bunch of guys, like you know, excuse me, young know, kids, you know, guys younger than I. And then like they they didn't learn these skill sets in in, in their training or in their schooling. So how do you train these, these people quickly or give them the, the ways they can adopt these solutions? In just this particular space at this company, we implemented a kind of a virtual augmented reality set of goggles and HoloLens. The technology stuff doesn't really matter, but the idea was that in just this space for these areas of workers, if there was a very nuanced question, instead of having to call that, that senior engineer on staff, get him on a bed, get him into the plant, get him to show you how he's got a suit up, show him how, how you do this, you can pop on one of these goggles and make a Teams call to his phone when he or she is on call and he can roll out of bed and be kind of grumbly, but he can see on his phone what you are looking at through your goggles and he can hear you and you can say, Hey, you know, Joe, I don't know. I, I don't want to take the line down, but I don't think I need to. I didn't try and train on this or I trained on it two years ago. I never had to do it. Can, which, which lever do I pull?
0: But, Should I cut the blue wire or the red wire?
1: Exactly. Right. <laughs> Amazon, Nancy. Mancy. <Yeah>. Um, <laughs> But uh yeah, so and, and that was a piece that wasn't it was very it would have been too expensive for the whole organization, but for certain niche cases, it it, it saved a lot of time. And yeah. the feedback also the less important but the feedback was that it was fun. Yeah, guys <laughs> like I liked to use it because it, it was kind of Star Wars y, you know. So
0: I've I've heard of that scenario described as like remote expert use yeah. case. I think that makes a lot of sense, and and what we've seen with some other organizations, and actually some technology partners that that we have that have really worked to systematize what you're describing, is not only providing the real time solution for that communication between the person who's on site with the piece of equipment and the remote expert, but also now systematizing the process of gathering that data. What is that question that's being asked? What is the answer that was given? And then now building content off of that exchange so yeah. that in future versions of this, you're building an archive. Because what you just talked about, we could have an entire show about the aging of workforce and tribal knowledge in an, in an organization and how to capture that tribal knowledge. And wh- what I've seen is that there's a, a bit of reluctance by some of those tribe leaders to part with some of that knowledge overtly because that that's part of their – that's currency for them. It's, it's part of – it gives them some protection inside a, a big organization, yeah. right? Absolutely. That they know some things that other people don't necessarily know. Right. And I certainly understand and respect that they've earned that to, to an extent, but that is also intellectual property that, you know, the company has to harness and find a way to make that transition smooth. Right. And that use case that you talked about, you know, definitely sets the stage for that. So that's really pretty interesting. I really do think we could have a whole conversation about that. That's pretty fascinating.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Man, this has been a great conversation today, Adam. I knew uh, it was going to go very fast, and it has. We've come up to the uh, to the end of the conversation already, but uh, I really do appreciate your insights. I, I really, actually, one thing I found particularly interesting is just the the diversity of of your background. Actually, having a background in nursing, healthcare is an area that's always been a, a bit of a blind spot for me. I've never, other than being a, a patient, uh, I really have no professional experience in healthcare. Mm-hmm. So. I'm kind of fascinated in particular about the use of technology and uh, the challenges that are faced. And, and as we talked about at the top of the show, you know, there's a, and and I may be even guilty of this. Sometimes we think of frontline and deskless workers with kind of a certain education background and, and other, um, you know, aspects of their profile. But I think doctors and nurses throw a lot of that out the window. <laughs> they have more education than the average Joe. And yet, technology adoption is still a challenge in their workforce, which just kind of reinforces what the theme of this show, which is that technology adoption in large enterprise is a pervasive problem that needs to be addressed. And we need to continue to, to spend time thinking about it. And hopefully we'll continue to have great guests like you to come on the show and, and listeners who uh, you know want to continue to think on this stuff. So thanks again for your time today.
1: No, thank you. I appreciate it.
0: Excellent. Well, to our audience, we do need to wrap it up. I hope you found the conversation as enjoyable as I have. If so, please share and rate the podcast. Five-star ratings help ensure that it gets promoted to other professionals like you that are innovating on the front lines. And a reminder that this podcast is sponsored by Skillful, the mobile digital adoption platform for deskless and frontline workers. Visit the website at skyllfu And if you or someone else you know is out there innovating on the front lines, we'd love to hear about it. Please reach out to me on LinkedIn and share your story or their story. Make a uh, recommendation or an introduction, and uh, we'd love to see them or you on our next episode. Adam, thanks again for your time today. Thank you. Take care.